Nice to see everybody tonight. So you probably remember tonight we'll have small groups. Here we can. Help me remember to shut the candle off or blow the candle out. <laughs> Jenny brought some uh, flameless candles for the retreat property, knowing our human minds and how easy it is to forget things. You know, the ones with the little LED bulb that flickers. <laughs> So we'll see how it goes. So tonight is one of those nights where the content in the Buddhist studies class coincides actually with what we've been talking about in the uh, weekly practice groups where we're talking about the mindfulness of the mind. And um, for us who are studying the Eightfold Path, I thought tonight both in the small groups that we'll have later, but also what I'll share now and any comments you might have now for the whole group, to really look at that dynamic of the view of the mind, the intentions of the mind, and the activities of the mind and body. And these are the first three parts, or first six parts really, first five parts of the Eightfold Path, right? We have right view, right intention, which come together to be wisdom, the wisdom piece. And then we have right speech, right action, right livelihood. And uh, where does right speech, right action, right livelihood come from? Well, that active expression of the body and mind can only come from one thing, which is intention in the mind. And where does intention come from? Well, intention is born out of the view the understanding of the mind. Now, of course, the are, in any moment, the particular view or understanding of the mind is relatively subtle. It's not so easy to discern. So as we talk about this, it will be easy, and in the small groups, it's relatively easy to say, well, I did notice today that I was really impatient. And that impatience expressed itself as me saying this to this person in this situation, or me acting this way in this situation. Now, that's pretty concrete, and it's pretty easy for us to see. Maybe not in the moment we're too lost or caught up, but maybe later in hindsight we can see that. And uh, that, um, you know, impatience then, it begs the question, well, what was the motivating intention that led to that impatient activity, led to me saying that thing to that person or acting this way in that situation. What kind of, you know, like that force of intention to do, to say, what was that in the mind? What can we remember? You know, if not seeing it in the moment, what can we remember in hindsight? And then, even before, before that, we can ask the question, well, what was the uh, view that that intention or those intentions were born out of? How was the mind understanding? And in particular, a use, I find a useful way to look at right view is to ask the question, what is the mind's relationship now with sense experience? What is the mind taking 
sense experience to be. This is what we talked about on Sunday with the practice groups. To really take, you know, like it or not, it's subtle, but we have to take responsibility for this mind and this moment, its relationship, the way it's relating to sense experience. What is it expecting from sense experience or demanding of sense experience or, you know, what kind of dependency does it have in this moment on sense experience? I mean, basically, an ordinary when we're ordinary human beings, worldly, uninstructed human beings, like the Buddha might say, then that means we're expecting, thinking that sense experience could provide happiness for me. If only I could get the right sense experiences or get rid of the noxious ones. So, uh, maybe the easiest way to talk about ignorance, human ignorance, is the view that sense experiences, this life of sense experiences, sequence of sense experiences that is life, is here, thinking that it's here in order to provide my happiness. If I could only get the right sense experiences. You see what a huge assumption that is for the mind, that conclusion that the world of experiences is here. Its function is to make us happy. Our relationships, our, the meals we eat, the sights we see, the sounds we hear, the thoughts we, we think, that The whole purpose is to provide happiness or satisfaction for me. Now, from a Buddhist path of awakening point of view, the world of experiences is here to realize the happiness of letting go or the happiness of non-clinging to sense experiences. That's the one thing sense experiences can provide is the ground for letting go. You see, so that's quite a shift in view. And you you can just notice like how many times even during the course of this hour and a half class, but you know, through the day, through our lives, how many times our mind construct some idea of a set of experiences that would then make me happy, including imagining the experience of being enlightened. So, you know, it could be anything, very rich, very beautiful, very powerful, very enlightened, uh, very nice, very powerful. So whatever that imagining, it's always an imagining of sense experience, some sense experience reality, that will finally deliver the satisfaction that we somehow think will come from sense experience. So these, um, this spread that we're really looking at, in a way, the Eightfold Path, you know, we have right view, right intention, and then this area of sila, right speech, action, and livelihood. So this is the more gross expression of the mind and body what we're saying, what we're doing,
doing in the world. So there we have the view, the intentions, and out of the view and intention comes this expression, this outward expression in the world. And in order to really understand it, we need samadhi, the last part of the path, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. That's what really stabilizes the attention, balances the mind, so the mind can see this dynamic. It's really the dynamic of karma. View, the view in the mind, is a karmic act. However we're viewing, however the mind right now, whatever the mind is, right, however the mind is relating to sense experience right now is a karmic act, meaning there are consequences to how we're relating to sense experience right now. And the intentions that come out of the view what we're taking sense experience to be, there's some intentions, maybe greed or maybe renunciation. But whatever that is, that's also a karmic act, that intention. And then whatever we do with the intention, however it's expressed by how we're thinking or what we're saying or what we're doing or how we're earning our surviving in the world, you know, earning our livelihood, that also is a karmic act. So, we'll continue this process of having a view, having intention, expressing those intentions out in the world. And then, you know, in this book, hopefully some of you are reading it, I think it's really excellent. I mean, Bhikkhu Bodhi's book on the Noble Eightfold Path might seem a little, I don't know if academic's the right word or... You know, he has a particular way of writing and expressing himself, but it's a beautiful articulation of the Buddha's teaching. So just in terms of getting the information from our teacher, the Buddha, it's a really good, useful resource. So I encourage people to read the book. Even if you've read it, I found, I've read it, I don't know how many times now, but I find it's, uh, it's just a useful resource and it's not that long. So you can read now all the way through the chapter on right spe- uh, speech, right action, right livelihood. Um, and he talks about, you know, in that, um, I lost my, my point here. Well, in any case, so this dynamic between the view, the intention, and then how it's expressed really see it as karma, setting something in motion, and to get interested in what's getting set in motion. So when you talk to your, in your small groups tonight, I thought about, you know, it'd be nice to do a matrix where we have view, intention, and action. Speech is also action, so like outward expression. And just see that as a continuum. You don't you don't get any one part without the other two parts. You don't have intention without it coming, being born out of a view and it getting expressed in some way. Even if the expression of the intention is like, don't do that, you know, like somehow restraining yourself from acting on your intention, that is the action that is coming out of that intention to restrain yourself from acting it out. So... In any moment, there are, these three things are there, 
And then the question, you know, with whatever samadhi we, we have, with whatever balance, steadiness of mind we have, we want to see those three things as karma, meaning cause and effect, that it's setting something in motion. So the, of course, the appropriate question is, well, what is it setting in motion? What's getting born out of view, intention, and action, expression in this moment? Is it in the direction of contraction in the, or in the direction of release? And this is really about owning this karmic condition, you know, which may feel overwhelming, but there's really no way out for us human beings. Or there is only one way out, I should say, which is the deepening of understanding. We need to understand this predicament of view, intention, expression, all uh, setting something in motion. It's, it is what sets things in motion. And those whatever it is that's set in motion will be experienced, will be somebody, you know, what we call me, will be sensitive to what gets set in motion. And there's no, nothing we can do except shift the understanding of this dynamic. So it's not even about ending the dynamic of view, intention, expression. Although, on the mundane level, that's exactly what we're trying to do, have a different view, different intentions, different expression. So like, you know, in the Eightfold Path, we talk about wrong view, like greed, ill will, delusion, you know, harming others. These intentions are, we want to abandon because by paying attention, we see how much Suffering comes, results from those intentions being acted out. But on a deeper level, we just want to shift the understanding to really see that view, intention, expression is something impersonal. And see that that undermines, see what makes view, intention, and expression toxic is the personalizing of it. And this relates, this is, so there's two ways to think about the, the root of wrong view. Seeing this karmic process as belonging to me. Or another way to think about it, thinking that the experience the results, the karmic results, like what we're experiencing right now, is the place to find happiness, which is a, just another way of taking it personally. But when there is a sense of self, the expression of a sense of self is somebody who wants to find happiness in the results of our experience. That's where the self looks for happiness in the results of our experiences or in the expression of our experiences. 
And it's because of that identification with, you know, the fruits of karma, because this experience I'm having right now, as we say, is the fruit of karma, right? You can't have an experience unless there are causes. I'm not saying that I sat or there was somebody, the Buddha, nobody is saying, as far as I know, that somebody like me set in motion all of the causes that now are expressing themselves as this moment. But the fact is that this moment is the expression of what came before. It's just the natural fruiting or um, a, a sort of coming together of what's been set in motion. So that's why I started with getting interested in like, how do we relate what's showing up in every moment? We'd always, I mean, from a conventional point of view, it always feels like a personal insult if it's not what we like or a personal delight if it is what we like. You know, it's like even having a, whatever it happens someday when we have a nice spring day, you know, <laughs> it's going to feel personal. Like that the beauty of it will feel personal in some way. That will be the habit of the mind. Just like, I don't know about you, but the, you know, the snow showers earlier today and the wind and the relative cold temperature, it probably felt personal. Like, you know, why? <laughs> so, the practice, you know, if we can, when the samadhi is really subtle, then we're practicing the, in terms of the intervention of practice, of mindfulness practice or this path of awakening, the intervention is sort of shifts depending on how good the samadhi is. When the mind is not very balanced, not very steady, then we just can't help. The only place we can act is on the level of expression. You know, if we have at least a little bit of mindfulness, it may not be very steady, but a little bit of mindfulness, we might have a sense that I'm about to do something that I shouldn't do. You know, take something that's not mine, say something that's going to be hurtful. And on this level of protecting ourselves, the best we can do is practice restraint. So on the most gross level, mindfulness is used to activate restraint on the level of expression, you know, right speech, or on the level of speech, action, and livelihood. Like, don't do that. That's not going to help. I know you really want to, you know, I know you feel compelled because the mind is so dependent on wanting things a particular way. It it seems to make sense to act out in this way, but don't do it. So, you know, when you talk about some pattern in your life, you can just bring something up, some problem, some great place in your life, and then when you're in your small group and during this next couple of weeks, then talk about it in terms of these three levels, you know, subtle to gross. So whatever that thing in your life that seems important or relevant or a place of practice or place an edge in your practice, then think about like well, what is the actual expression in terms of what you say, both in terms of your internal dialogue 
and also outward, what would you say out loud, what you do and how it relates to just this, on this gross level of survival. Survival as a social being, as a being that needs to eat. So you can talk about it and understand it on that level. Understand it in terms of what's the activity of your mind, what kind of intentions are active in your mind in this particular edge in your practice. And then you might have to speculate or you might have some clear seeing what is the underlying view? How is the mind relating or understanding experience in that place in your life? And then to talk about, and both in the small group to talk about, but then in your practice to, to experiment with different, to different interventions depending on how much clarity you have, how much stability of attention there is. So when there's not a lot of clarity, then, like I said, we're just trying to refrain from gross transgressions where we're doing stupid things that cause us and other people harm. When there's more stability, more clarity, then, then the intentions in the mind come online. There's enough stillness, enough steadiness, that it's relatively easy to see the activity of mind the kinds of intentions that are coming and going in the mind and possibly discern like the skillfulness of those intentions. And we can use the list right out of the Buddha's description of the Eightfold Path. That kind of looks like greed. That kind of looks like aversion or anger. That kind of looks like you know, delusion. Or that kind of looks like renunciation or generosity or letting go. That kind of looks like goodwill or kindness, or that kind of looks like not wanting to harm, wanting to take care of, wanting to be supportive. So we're just looking at the intentions and the intervention there, the way we intervene there, and this is a lot what happens in a sit because when we're doing our, you know, our sit or 45 minute sit, 30 minute sit every day, there's just, you know, better, um, conditions so that things settle down, mind settles down, more clarity, more steadiness of attention. And then a lot of the activity of meditation is like, you know, even if we're doing a breath meditation, a lot of what we're doing is noticing the activity of mind and having some sense of its skillfulness or unskillfulness. And then skillfully, like the first intervention is just to notice if it is, if it does have the appearance of being unskillful, the mental activity, just noticing the unskillfulness of it, like it has a contracted, tight, entangling feeling to it. And sometimes just seeing the unskillfulness of the mental activity is enough for it to either transform or fall away or, or at least not get acted out in any way. Or, you know, and the Buddha has other strategies. Well, you could try to substitute another mental activity into the mind so that that previous mental activity gets pushed out. Or you could consider like how uh, unskillful this is, like really see where this, if the mind gets identified with this mental activity, like where that's going to lead. If you keep thinking about how you want to get even with that person, what kind of mind is getting set in motion? What kind of heart is getting set in motion? The Buddha likened this to recognizing that you have a garland of rotting flesh around your neck. You would be disgusted, like, 
know, don't do that. Are you kidding? You really want to think in this way? You really want to keep putting your aim in your mind in this direction? Really? It's just because we don't look carefully that it makes sense. I really see this in areas now. I mean, much better seeing this in areas of lust and uh, different kinds of ill will, like even more subtle kinds of ill will, like worrying, where it seems so justifiable, so useful to worry about things. But it's, it's really an activity of fear and ill will. Some ill will about that idea that I'm worrying about or fearing. We think somehow it's okay to, like it's not okay to be have ill will toward another person, but it is okay to have ill will toward some idea of what might happen to me. But the, the actual squeeze in the heart is not that different. Ill will is ill will in terms of the effect on the heart. So we can see that, we can substitute, we can, uh, different ways, just skillful means of putting it down. We can ignore it. We can get interested in where it came from. We can willfully say, I'm not going to look at that or pick that up, engage that. I mean, basically the Buddha would teach do whatever you have to so that you're not watering, reinforcing intentions that cause yourself and others harm. Because this is this whole premise of understanding karma. What the mind is doing has consequences. So on the gross level, the basic intervention is different kinds of restraint. So feeling the force of intention to wanting to express itself by thinking obsessively or saying something or doing something, but putting the brakes on, basically. And the level of the mind, when you can notice things more clearly on that more subtle level, see the intentions, the mental activity, then it's like learning skillfully how to change what the mind is doing, the activity of the mind. Can we bring something positive in the mind? How can the mind skillfully unhook from this mental activity. Stop feeding it. How can it starve it? This is a metaphor the Buddha used a lot. Maybe by feeding something positive, I can unhook from it. Or maybe just by starving the unskillful activity of mind, by not practicing, not identifying with it. And then on the level of view, the intervention is... uh, It's really about discerning or understanding the experience of release. Because on the deepest level, when you're looking at view, when the mind is really steady, really still, clear, bright, so that beautiful balance of mind, that's the mind that can see things clearly, even subtle things clearly, like the view that's coloring the mind in the moment. And so... The, the practice at that level of view is also very subtle. It's much less doing. Like on the level of action, it's a very gross intervention. Like restraining ourselves is a gross intervention. But on the level of view, it's really as much as just remembering release or remembering non-clinging. 
So the view might be there, like uh, thinking that if only, then I'll be happy. You know, that might be, some version of that view might be operating in the mind. If only this experience, I'll be happy. Or if only I get rid of, then I'll be happy. And so the mind is remembering the view, you know, remembering right view, which is the view of non-clinging or the way of non-clinging, relating with non-clinging. So the practice is the not clinging to the view that's already there, not personalizing it. So it's not about even the intervention isn't even isn't even about like having right view. Okay, remember emptiness. Remember anatta. You know what we studied this winter. Not self. It's not self. Because see, there is greed there, and sort of putting that view in. That's at a grosser level. That's more at the second level, like at the level of intention. But when the mind is more still, the practice can be even more subtle and more powerful, more transforming. Just to remember. The mind not dependent, not clinging. And so, what is it not clinging to? It's not clinging to this wrong view. It's not taking this wrong view up, to t- taking it up as self. You see, it's, so it's very subtle. It's just a matter of a shift in understanding. Nothing has to change except its understanding. So it's not so much that views are wrong as they get fixed. You know, there's this whole teaching in the Buddha's teachings. Um, and I'll just end here and then we can divide into groups. Some of you have heard this before, called the distortions of mind or sometimes translated as the perversions of mind. I'll try to scan this and, and get it up on the website. This is nice because it also has Andy Olensky's notes, this particular sutta. It's from the Aguttara Nikaya, this collection of discourses. These four, O practitioners, are distortions of perception, distortions of thought, distortions of view. So the Buddha is talking about gross to subtle, perception, thought or intention, and view. Sensing no change in the changing, sensing pleasure and suffering, assuming self where there is no self, sensing the unlovely as lovely. So this happens on all levels, from the gross to the most subtle. We may, there, the mind is distorted. Sensing no change in what is changing, sensing pleasure in what is limited or unsatisfactory. Assuming self where there is no self or assuming it belongs or there's a center there where there is no center. Sensing the unlovely as lovely. Gone astray with wrong views, beings misperceive with distorted minds. Bond in the bondage of Mara, those people are far from safety. They are beings that go on flowing go again from death to birth. But when in the world of darkness Buddhas arise to make the things bright, they present this profound teaching which brings suffering to an end. When those with wisdom have heard this, they recuperate their right mind. They see change in what is changing, suffering where there is suffering, 
non-self and what is without self, they see the unlovely as such. By this acceptance of right view, they overcome all suffering. Now just keep that in mind in terms of this practice of seeing view correctly. They see change in what is changing. So whatever the view is, it's a, it's a process. The reason we take it personally is it feels fixed. But it feels fixed because we're not paying attention to it closely. So whatever view we have, if only this, I'll be happy. It feels like it's solid. So it's easier to mistake it as self. But if we see change in what is changing, suffering where there's suffering, the suffering isn't the view itself, it's the attachment to the view or the identification with the view. Non-self and what is without self, it's just nature, that view. They see the unlovely as such. So unlovely doesn't mean that it's disgusting. It means that the view isn't something worthy of grasping. We only grasp what we think is lovely. So what is unlovely doesn't mean it's disgusting. That's sort of equally a mistaken view. So, again, in your small groups, you can just take some areas of your life that are charged, charged because they feel great or charged because they're great and you really like it or charged because it's difficult for you. And then, if you can, talk about like what you do in those moments, like how you express yourself, what you say, what you think, how you act, and the consequence, so as a karmic act. And then reflect, if you can, like what sort of intentions, what's the activity in your mind, and talk about that as a karmic act, like there are consequences for that mental activity. And what is the underlying view? And what happens when you think about these three things, view, intention, action, as nature, not self? When through practice, you know, the study, bringing a steady attention to any of these levels, seeing it without these distortions that the Buddha talks about. So that's what I thought would be useful to talk about in small groups. I think we have a little bit less than 70 people tonight, so why don't we count off by 21. Do you want to start, Carrie? One, two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.